Good morning, church. Can you please remain standing as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1? This morning we're going to be going through verses 10 through 12. And we're a church that loves the Word of God. We believe that it is the infallible, inerrant Word of God has been passed down to us that we could hear God's voice every Sunday. And it's why we preach verse by verse, week by week, knowing that only in these pages in the Scripture does God speak to us. Hope you're there. So starting in verse 10, we're saying, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that we have the opportunity to gather on a morning like this in this cafeteria and sing praises to your name, to read your word, to study your word, Lord. We pray that you be with us this morning, that your spirit work in our hearts, that you calm me, calm my nerves, give me the ability to speak well, and to speak for your glory. Father, speak to your church this morning. In these things we pray. Amen. So if you've probably noticed by now, yeah, you could sit down. As you've probably noticed by now, I am not Pastor Leo. Um, some of you may be new, and <laughs> you might know the difference. Um, but, yeah, so we are in a rotation currently with the church, right? So the leadership has chosen some of the community group leaders to support Leo in the task of preaching. A few weeks ago, we heard from Raymond. On Christmas Eve, we heard from Andrew. This morning, it'll be me. And then Leo will continue to faithfully bring the word, as well as our deacon, Dan, who many of you have already heard before, and we've all been blessed by his teaching. So continue to pray for us. Continue to support us, encourage us. It is a heavy task to stand before the people of God and to bring the word. And we do not take it lightly. And just pray for us and remember us. So we spent the last three weeks going through 1 Peter, right? We've done the first nine verses. And so far, Peter has come alongside his readers, and he wants to encourage them. He addresses their situation, their current situation, gives them reason to persevere. He wants to supplement their faith, wants to give them a foundation for their faith. He tells them that they are the elect of God, that God has chosen them and known them. He tells them that God is sanctifying them, that God has by his own power caused them to be born again, that through the resurrection of Christ, the believer is raised with him to a living hope, that the Christian hope is not in things that will perish and fade away, but that the Christian inheritance is one that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, that it is God who keeps it for them and it is not something they lose, that it is, God, it is God, God's power working in them, giving them faith. He addresses their trials, their persecution, affirming their joy, encouraging them that these trials are for their good and for the glory of God. He addresses their love and their faith, and over and over, Peter's addressing their situation, their reality, and he encourages them. He wants them to have more faith, he wants them to persevere, and he wants them not to give up on Christ. And so we come to the verses we are today, in verse 10 through 12, and Peter does more of the same. He's addressing their situation, their reality. He's addressing the privilege they have, and he wants to encourage them. 
In verse 10, he starts saying, concerning this salvation, right, everything we just recapped, the promise, the inheritance they have, the salvation they have in Jesus Christ, they were bought and purchased with his blood, a redeemed people, and that they have hope, an eternal hope. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here we see Peter showing us that Christianity is not a new religion. He draws a, contra- or a comparison between the Old Testament and the New. The first century Christians relied on the Old Testament as scripture, as the word of God, and that it was something that they needed to know, needed to study, and it was how God spoke to them. There are teachers today that stand before their congregations like I do now, and they say, we don't need the Old Testament. It's irrelevant. It's a bunch of outdated rules and myths and stories that we don't know if they're even true, but it's stuff we don't need to care about. One such teacher is a pastor. He, they call him a pastor. He calls himself a CEO, so that should already give you some red flags and cause for concern. But his name's Andy Stanley, and he's recently been pretty adamant about over and over telling his church that they don't need the Old Testament. That Christians must unhitch themselves from the Old Testament because it's irrelevant. And if the church is to succeed in modern America, that they need to reject the Old Testament. He's pretty much teaches that the New Testament believers or the first century Christians were kind of making things up as they go along, that Jesus brought a new message, and that they don't need the Old Testament. And this man has a huge following, and many people believe that lie. And you start to wonder if he's read passages like this in First Peter, or Peter is referencing prophets. And if we don't know our Old Testament, how do we know what Peter's talking about? The book of Hebrews does the same. It relies on its audience familiarity with the Old Testament, saying, look at the Old Testament, look at Judaism, and see how it pointed to Christ and how Christ is greater. If we aren't aware of that, Christianity isn't complete. We need our Old Testaments. There is a, a string, in a way, a redemptive trail that goes through the whole scriptures. that starts from the first pages and goes all the way through. It's not like God created man and a few centuries down the line realized, dang it, I screwed up, or a few millennia down the line. <laughs> I chose these Israelites, and they just keep screwing up. They're wrong. They're sinful. They keep pursuing their own desires. I need to restart. I'm going to send my son. He's going to bring a beautiful message of peace and love and joy, all the nice peaches and cream, and they're just going to follow him, and we're going to restart. That's not what we see. We see from the first pages that God has a redemptive plan. That from before the foundations of the earth, that God had a plan to save and redeem sinners. We see this play out again in the first pages of Scripture. God creates the universe, the planets, the stars, the sky, earth, the land, the water, trees, plants, animals. He creates mankind. And he gives mankind dominion over this earth. He gives them the freedom to enjoy it. But he makes one rule. In Genesis 2, he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just a one simple rule. Don't eat from this one tree. Sure enough, this sly little serpent character slides in and starts to question that rule. Does God really say that? God's keeping something from you. If you eat of that, that fruit, you'll know something. You'll be like God. He's just hiding things from you. So they fall. They believe a lie. They rebel against God. And God punishes them. 
He banishes them from Eden and from his presence. But in that banishment, he doesn't just chase them away and reject them, but he gives them a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says, speaking to the serpent here, right? he speaks to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Seems like an interesting little, little anecdote, right? Or a little uh, riddle. But we today know this is the first display in the promise of a Messiah that the serpent, who is Satan, will bruise the heel of that offspring, who is Jesus, who will kill him on a cross. But ultimately, that that death on the cross will crush the head of that snake and defeat sin and death is the first promise of a Messiah, the first hope that we have that God is sending someone to redeem sinful mankind. So man, at this point, falls, gets banished from Eden, but they have a promise. But man gets has kids who are sinful and they have kids who are more sinful and they have kids who are more sinful and it goes on and on in a way god kind of there's a story of almost like a reboot that god decides to send a flood choose noah and his family save them and re and repopulate the earth and then as the earth is repopulated nations are created god decides to choose a man named abram a pagan man from a pagan nation and says i will choose this man and from him i will create a nation and in genesis 12, 1 through 3, God says, or the scripture says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make for you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, we see God promising an offspring that will bless the earth. And you could say, oh, Alex, you're just reading into that. The offspring could have been anybody. He's just saying maybe that the Jews are going to bless people. But Paul, writing to the Galatians, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, exegetes this promise for us. He tells us what this promise means. He says to the Galatians in 3.14, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul tells us that this promise that Abram received millennia before, thousands of years before, was, to the, was about Jesus, that it was to the Christian that, and to the sinner that God would send a promised blessing that would redeem his people, that he would bless the whole earth through this man. And I could spend the next hour, probably more than an hour, but probably weeks, going through the whole Old Testament telling you the different times that God promises a Messiah and the different ways he promises a Messiah and how they point to Jesus. But earlier this week, I was listening to a pastor, and he said the difference between a long sermon and a hostage situation is a very fine line. <laughs> so I want to do my best to <laughs> save you from that. Um, so I'll, I'll run through a quick list that we see different characters in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. We see Jesus throughout the Psalms, how he is the greater David, the faithful shepherd of his sheep, He's the Son of God who will save his people. And he's the incarnate Word of God and the wisdom of God. Isaiah in chapter 9 tells us of a child that will be born who will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that this child will bring peace and justice and he will establish an eternal kingdom. In chapter 43, he speaks of a man who will be Israel's one and only Savior. And in chapter 53, Isaiah speaks of that man, the one and only Savior, that will go and be slaughtered like a lamb. 
that he has carried our griefs and our sorrows, that God has taken our sin and laid it on him, that he has borne our transgressions and our iniquities, and God has poured out the punishment for our sins on him. And that even now that this man makes intercession for his people, Jeremiah writes of one who will be the great physician who brings healing to his people, that he will drink the cup of God's wrath, that his people might be spared, that he will establish a new covenant with his blood, and it will be written on the hearts of his people. Daniel speaks of the Son of Man who will rule forever, and that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Hosea points to Jesus by telling the story of the perfect husband who mercifully takes back his unfaithful wife. He takes the people who are not a people, and people who are without mercy, and he shows them mercy and makes them his people. And then Zechariah tells of a humble king who will enter Jerusalem, riding a donkey, bringing salvation to his people. And the list goes on and on. We can go through the whole testament showing the promises of the Messiah, the promises of Jesus, that Jesus will come, that he will suffer, and he will redeem his people. Peter in this text says that these prophecies, they serve us. You can see why it would be such a crime for us to reject the Old Testament. Why it would be such a wicked thing to neglect the truths in the Old Testament. That God has sovereignly appointed these texts to come down to us. That we could read them. We could see how the prophets and the promises that pointed to Jesus and what they tell us. What they teach us about our Savior and about our God. They show us our sinfulness, our need for a Savior. They show us the promises of that Savior. The author of Hebrews speaks of the Old Testament heroes, all these prophets, all these people who had faith and lived for God. The heroes of the faith is what we call them in that chapter. In chapter 11, he tells us that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. All these prophets, all these Old Testament characters, they look forward to the hope of Christ, but they knew that they were never going to see the fulfillment of it. They weren't going to physically see Jesus, see him heal, see him work. They weren't going to see him teach or hear him teach. They weren't going to see him save. But they had hope. They looked forward with that promise of a blessing. In the same chapter, that the author of Hebrews speaks of Moses. And he says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Moses, in Egypt, thousands of years before Jesus was born, didn't see Jesus. He didn't hear him teach. He didn't see him perform miracles. He didn't see him die on a cross. Yet Moses rejected his Egyptian royalty, the fleeting pleasures of sin, the things he had on this earth, because he knew of a promised hope. He was willing to suffer with his people because he knew the reward to know Jesus was far greater. Peter, again, in Acts, after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples and on the church, Peter preaches on this topic again. And this is a common theme in Peter's writing. He constantly quotes the Old Testament, constantly points to the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, Peter says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the, pre- from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from my people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the family of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And I might be sounding a little redundant right now. I've over and over and over repeated that the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. And then we can't reject the, the Old Testament. But it's something we need to grasp. It's something that we need to consider when we study the Scriptures. We need to love our Old Testaments. We need to seek our Savior in its pages. Right? It's not just some stories. It's not a historical fiction novel. Right? There's not myths in it. There's not just crazy, confusing things. But Peter says in that text that through the prophets, through Moses, through Samuel, through all of the scripture, they point to Jesus. There's a common thread going through all of the Old Testament. God has a single redemptive plan that he decided to reveal to us. After the resurrection, there's a story in Luke's account of the gospel where he tells of a couple of disciples who are distraught after Jesus' death. They're despondent. Right? They thought they had a teacher, and that teacher died. They thought they had the Messiah. And Jesus himself walks up to them as they're going to a town called Emmaus. He asks them what's going on. And they're complaining. They're voicing their disappointment. They had followed a man they thought was the Messiah, but he was murdered. And some of the friends are telling them that this, that this teacher rose again, but they don't believe it. They're in a pretty terrible place. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't go, hey guys, I'm here. I'm alive. Let's keep on performing miracles and preaching love and all that kind of stuff. No, Luke says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He wanted them to see that the Old Testament pointed to a Messiah who would suffer and die and rise again. That that's what their hope should be in, the promise that God gave through this Messiah. Jesus himself used the Old Testament time and time again to point to that truth. Dr. Evan Clowney, talking about this story in Luke, says that Jesus was not willing to show Cleopas, that's one of the, one of the disciples there, that he was somehow alive, since in a chance universe anything can happen, right? It's a crazy world, anything can happen, right? Sometimes people we thought were dead can be alive, right? It's just anything can happen. But the good news is not that there was once a resurrection. The good news is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Our hope isn't just in a story of a man who existed 2,000 years ago and that taught good things and then died and then allegedly rose again. But our hope is in the fact that God himself ordained that plan from the beginning of creation, from before the beginning of creation. And that the scriptures were fulfilled, that God had promised this hope and this blessing over and over again and finally revealed it. Here in 1 Peter, we see that these things, Peter writes in verse 10 and 11, saying, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We have received the same message as those prophets. The same spirit has revealed it to us. But instead of greeting it from afar, we get the substance. We get to experience it. We get to know it. They had faith in a future glory, but we get to love that and know it and experience it fully. God has poured out a spirit on us and revealed these things to us. 
God, Christ has come and saved, and we might know him. We don't just get the promises, but we get to enjoy the substance of those promises. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We as Christians have a great privilege from God. God has decided to reveal himself to us in a way that was never revealed to the Old Testament prophets, to the Old Testament heroes of faith. They had promises, glimpses of a future thing, but we get to enjoy it fully. We get to experience the outworking of God's redemptive plan in each and every one of our lives. And Peter here tells us in this verse, in these verses, these are things into which angels long to look. Think about that. Angels, right? These like amazing, cool beings that we all have like weird ideas of that probably fly around with wings, maybe a sword or something, maybe a halo. One of them's probably playing a harp or something. Maybe they're fighting demons, I don't know, right? Maybe these crazy ideas from books and movies and whatnot. But Jesus or Peter says that these angels are interested in what's going on with us. That they look through a window, you know, in a sense, to see what's going on on earth, what God's doing with mankind. It's kind of like if you've ever been to the Malasada place up north in Honka'a, right, Tex, where you can see them make those Malasadas there, or a Krispy Kreme where you're looking through a window and you're watching how the machine works, how they make the dough, how they shape them, how they put cream in them. And with interest and intrigue, you're watching those like diabetic treats be made, and you're like, oh, I can't wait, that's amazing. In a sense, that's what angels do. <laughs> they sit there and watch from afar, that we have something that not even angels enjoy that we have the outworking of God's redemptive plan in our lives, that they with intrigue and interest look on at us. What a privilege we have. Not just more than what the Old Testament prophets experienced, but even what an angels experience. So why does Peter take time to say these things? What's the point? He strives to point his readers and ourselves to more reasons to persevere. He adds foundation to our belief and not to give us hope and joy and faith. He's told us of our status before God as his chosen and elect people. He's told us of the living hope we have in Christ and the inheritance we look forward to. He's told us of the joy we have in Christ and how his sovereignly appointed trials sanctify us and increase our faith. He tells us to consider the privilege we have here that the prophets look forward to and angels eagerly admire. Speaking of the same topic, the author of Hebrews again, I've been quoting Hebrews a lot. I recommend reading it, it's a great, great book. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, talking about those heroes of the faith he speaks of in chapter 11, all those Old Testament figures and characters. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great cloud of witnesses that point us to Jesus. We have the Old Testament figures, the stories, the prophecies, all the promises in the Old Testament, all those faithful characters who looked forward with hope. They witnessed to the promises of God. We have the New Testament the epistles, the gospels, all the, all the revelation that we have there. And again, they point us to God. They point us to Jesus. 
We take those things. We don't idolize any given character. We don't elevate any prophet, consider them to be some, some holy being. But we look at those witnesses, all the things that have been revealed to us through the scriptures. We use them to encourage our faith, to point us to Jesus, and we run to Jesus. But with as much hope and encouragement as this passage can give, saying, look at all that you have, all that's been revealed to you. You have a great privilege. There's also a warning for us to take from it. As the great philosopher Uncle Ben in every Spider-Man movie ever says, with great power comes great responsibility. And so for us, with great revelation comes great responsibility. Much has been revealed to you and I, Christian. We have the Old Testament, all the promises, all the stories. We have the New Testament. And even more on top of that, we have 2,000 years of church history pointing us to one truth. That Christ died to save sinners. God reveals himself time and time again through the scriptures. He speaks to us through his scriptures. We have a great privilege in that. And to reject that is to be in a very, very scary place. To ignore that, to neglect it, is to bring the judgment of God on ourselves. There's a story in Matthew 11 where Jesus addresses some cities that he's been teaching in, he's been preaching, he's been performing miracles, and they reject him. When talking to these cities, he references a few cities in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into and talk about those cities and everything about them, but he mentions Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? A people that rejected God, that rebelled against God, that lived in sin, and God poured out his judgment on them. These are wicked cities in the Old Testament that God over and over again proclaimed judgment on. But Jesus says to these cities that he's teaching, and he says to us that if they knew the things that you know, if they had seen the things that you've seen, if they've heard the things that you heard, they would have repented and existed to this day. God still judged those cities for what they, the lack that they knew, their ignorance. God still judged them for their sinfulness. But for us who have seen more, who have heard more, who have known more, who have far more revelation, Jesus says that on you to reject that is to bring condemnation on yourself that is far greater than those ancient cities ever received. And on the day of judgment, it'll be far worse for us. So to the believer, the warning is do not treat your privilege lightly. God has given you so much. He's revealed so much to you. Don't be lazy with it. Don't mistreat it. Don't mishandle it. Be faithful to God's word. Seek him through its pages. Cry out in prayer that the Holy Spirit will reveal him more and more and more. There's a quote by John Piper that says that worship is a response to revelation. And so much has been revealed to us. Do we worship? Do we see Christ in in the pages of scripture? And do we respond and and we worship to our God? Do we worship with our lives, our words, our deeds, our actions? Do we take the truths of the scripture and apply them to our lives and give God all the glory? But I'd be foolish to stand before everybody here and think that every single one in this room stands before God that way, knowing the revelation, having accepted. There are those of us in here who may think we're Christians, but we're not. There are those of you who may be your first time in church, and a lot of what I've said just sounds really confusing and weird. Like, what's this guy talking about? The warning for you is that if you reject Christ, it is to bring judgment, to wrath, the wrath of God on yourself. The story of the Bible, that single thread that runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that 
God created man and man sinned and fell, but God promised a redeemer. God promised a savior that God himself would give his son fully God, fully man. He would live a perfect life, die on a cross bearing our sin, our shame for you and I, that God would pour the wrath due us on Christ and give us his righteousness. And more so, he would give us his Holy Spirit, revealing himself to us more and more. He'd give us a new heart, a new life. He commands us to repent and believe. So in you, for you who has not done that, we plead. Look to Jesus. Plead that God would reveal himself to you, that the Spirit would do a work in your life. Repent and believe on the truth of the gospel, that Christ died to save a sinner like you and I. Because not to to be in a very scary place is to bring God's judgment on yourself because much has been revealed to you even if it's your first time in church you are without excuse repent and believe let's pray Father we thank you so much for this opportunity we thank you so much for the privilege we have before you that you have sovereignly chosen us You've elected us. You have made us your own. You've given us hope in the gospel. You've given us the opportunity to know you. You revealed yourself to us in a way that people from millennia never knew. We pray that you would be with us, Lord. That you do a work in our hearts. That your spirit would stir an affection for your word in us, Lord. That we would ne- not neglect the Old Testament. That we would neglect the truths that you revealed to us in those scriptures, Lord. More importantly, help us worship. Cause us to, to in humility, bow before you, to see what you teach us, and to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.